Rebecca Redeal here. Just a really quick message before the main episode starts. Two things to say. Firstly, a huge thank you to new and old listeners for listening and sharing and um, sending such lovely comments about the new season. It really does mean a lot. So that's great. Continue to share. Word of mouth is so helpful when it comes to independent podcasts. Another thing, and this is my second thing, another thing that's really important and helpful is if you do like the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's it. On with the show. Welcome to Killing Time the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Rodeal and I'll be your guide. Today's episode, The Grisly Death of Owen Tudor. It's early February 1461 and we're in Hereford on the English and Welsh border. Here, a formidable man in his 60s is being led through the marketplace to a chopping block and an executioner. This is the early years of the Wars of the Roses, and the man is a powerful Welsh warlord and supporter of the House of Lancaster. He's been captured by Yorkist forces during the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. His name? Owen Tudor. He's the founder of what would come to be known as the Tudor Dynasty, and within minutes, he'll be dead. In this episode, I'm going to explore the life and grisly death of Owen Tudor. And who better to guide us through than historian of medieval Welsh history, Nathan Ammon. Owen Tudor, could could you tell us about the world in which he was living? Yeah, no problem. So, Owen Tudor, uh, someone I do view as a titan of British history. He was born around, we believe, the year 1400, and he was born into a country at war with England, and that, of course, is Wales. Now, Owen Tudor was descended from some of the greatest Welsh royal houses that really imbued him with this pride in his lineage, in his pedigree, and it also was the foundation, really, of the respect that he, and later his son and grandson, would hold among the Welsh. When he was born, around 1400, Wales was at war. It was just about to embark on what is known by many within Wales as the last Welsh War of Independence. In English circles, of course, it's just viewed as another Welsh rebellion. And this rebellion was led by Owain Glyndw, very much the figurehead of this last movement for Welsh independence. Now, Owain Glyndw is, of course, the name that we remember today when we discuss this famous Welsh rebellion. But amongst his greatest supporters were his first cousins, and they were the Tudor family of Penmanev in Anglesey. Amongst his cousins was Rhys ap Tudor, Gwilym ap Tudor, and Meredith ap Tudor. And it was Meredith, the youngest of these Tudor brothers, that would be Owen Tudor's father. Now, Meredith ap Tudor, he disappears around the year 1406. It's been a decade of, of ups and downs, but by around 1412, the Welsh Rebellion has been suppressed by the English Crown. Owain Glyndwr disappears, and we also lose track of Meredith ap Tudor. We don't know what becomes of him, and it's likely that he died during these years. So Owen Tudor is very much a son during this period of tumultuous warfare. And we also lose his whereabouts at this period. The years following this war were very challenging for the Welsh. It was a period that they suffered great judicial 
economic and social hardship. There were a series of racially motivated and repressive laws passed by the English Crown, which cowed the Welsh into compliance. And it stripped many opportunities from the Welsh of this period to flourish. So when Owen Tudor surfaces again, around about 1421, around the age of 21 years old, he surfaces not in Wales, but he surfaces in England. It seems that he's become, in effect, a, a refugee. You know, he's fled his homeland, where after a decade of soldiers rampaging through the hills, it was left a smouldering ruin. Owen Tudor surfaces in England, and it is here that his story really starts in earnest. The son of a rebel, now a refugee uh, in hostile territory, about to make his mark on the world. So he's in England, he's a refugee. Can you paint a picture of his rise to prominence? So th through actions not of his making, you know, young Owen was denied any inheritance or any opportunity in Wales. Um, I was forced to England. You know, regardless of any skills or talents he had, the doors were effectively closed to him in his homeland. In May 1421, we do have a record where protection is given to a chap called Owen Meredith to join the France-bound retinue of an English magnate called Walter Hungerford. Now, you will have noticed I've said Owen Meredith there and not Owen Tudor, and it's probably at this point I'll just explain something regarding the names of Owen. In Wales at this period, we existed under patronymics. So the names of people were not given in surname form as they were in English. They were very much Owen, son of. And in Welsh, that term for son of is ap. So the name that he would have used and the name he would have recognised at this point would have been Owen ap Meredith ap Tide. Now, that is Owen, son of Meredith, son of Tudor. This was contracted in England during his life there. If you've gone up to an English language clerk and he's presented with the name Owen Ap Meredith Ap Tidder, he's just going to contract that to Owen Tudor. And gradually that's the name that comes down the ages to us. Which is actually quite interesting because in reality, when the Tudors came to the English throne, you know, the name that Henry was given, Henry VII, Henry Tudor, was Owen's grandfather's name. By all rights, the name of the dynasty should be the Meredith dynasty, because that was Owen's second name, Owen Ap Meredith Ap Tidder. So, we have Owen Meredith in 1421, possibly part of a retinue bound for France. And this is what happened to many young Welshmen of the era. They'd been raised in war in Wales. So when England later went to war with France, it was perfect for them to escape their homeland use the military skill that they had learned, but this time fight for the English crown rather than against the English crown. It is also this connection with the Hungerford family is probably how Owen Tudor entered the fringes of royal service. You know, the Hungerfords were close with the House of Lancaster, and however this occurred, we know that Owen somehow during the 1420s became acquainted with Catherine de Valois, the Dowager Queen and widow of Henry V. I'm going to suggest it's probable that Owen Tudor held some, you know, some middling post in the Queen's service. Some historians have said that he possessed roles such as the keeper of the Queen's household or keeper of her wardrobe. I probably think those are a bit too grand 
for the son of a Welsh rebel. Around this time, he is consistently regarded in the sources as a Welsh squire. So that is lower in status than a knight, and certainly not somebody worthy of much time and attention in England. But Owen, of course, he never forgot his Welsh royal lineage. And there is a famous saying in Wales, written by Gerald of Wales, that the Welsh value their descent more than anything in the world. So Owen, a lowly Welsh squire in England, in the service of the Dowager Queen, and outwardly at least, not up to much. I love this. This is where we get to all the really juicy stuff. Um, he must have had extraordinary charm to be able to move in these circles. But tell me, tell me about him and Catherine. So somehow, during this period, Owen Tudor enters a relationship with the Dowager Queen, Catherine de Valois. We're told by later sources, so we, you know, we can't be 100% certain of their accuracy, but we're told that these are two fairly beautiful young people. They're both in their 20s and they're both based at the same court. The two most well-known accounts of how they got together come from the work of two Welshmen. The first is by a Tudor chronicler named Ellis Griffith. Ellis Griffith was writing during the reign of Henry VIII, so a century later, so not exactly a contemporary account. A conjure Ellis, one summer's day, Owen Tudor was swimming in a river near where Catherine was staying when he was pointed out by one of her one of her handmaidens. She disguised herself as this servant and she met Owen that night because Owen apparently had a bit of a reputation for meeting her, meeting her servants and her handmaidens in private. During this meeting, Owen allegedly tried to kiss her twice, but the disguised queen turned her head, would not accept his kisses. He grew angry, so he nibbled her on her cheek, leaving a small mark that was said to identify her the next day. And angrily, he left, because he believed that someone was playing a trick on him. At dinner the next day, he was serving the queen, and when he looked up, the queen was tapping her face, showing this Welsh squire before her that it was she that he had nibbled on her face. From this very unlikely scenario, which, you know, to be honest, does sound a bit more down the lines of assault, according to Alice Griffith, a romantic relationship soon developed. They met undisguised and soon fell in love. Now, the second account that we have is from Robin V. Now, Robin V actually knew Owen Tudor personally. So I feel that already perhaps gives us a bit more, a bit more, gives him a bit more credibility. According to Robin, he quoted that Owen simply one day clapped his ardent, humble affection on the daughter of the king of the land of wine, which is a really poetic way to say a daughter of France. During a feast that night, Owen got drunk and he fell into her lap. And again, from this simple introduction, they soon fell in love. For me, I think the truth is probably a bit more boring than that. As part of a dower, Catherine had many Welsh lands, and it may be simply in reality that she used Owen to perform some kind of service for her, you know, using his assistance of Wales and the Welsh to help. Two young adults in their 20s, they're strangers from their homelands. I think they were lonely. I think just something as simple as that, they started to bond over a shared experience that did eventually develop into a romance. I just love this because with one account, we have a man who's, well, basically assaulting her. And with the other account, he's a drunk who falls into her lap. 
I mean, neither of which paint him in the best light, let's be honest. But yeah, history usually is much more boring. So yeah, I think I'm with you. I think, I think you've got the right take. Catherine was extremely eligible and arguably the most powerful woman in England. But there was concern over who she would marry because a new husband would have the power to influence her infant son, Henry VI, who'd inherited the throne upon the death of his father. Whatever the truth of the beginnings of their union, the couple would go on to enjoy a solid and long-lasting partnership that would have far-reaching effects. The pair were likely married in private shortly thereafter. There has never been any contemporary doubt drawn on the fact that they married. And during this period, they had four children born in secrecy away from the royal court. You know, as you could probably imagine, a dowager queen suddenly marrying a Welsh squire and having a number of children is not really what the political elite of the day would have wanted to see happen. Richard III, later on, when he was attempting to denigrate the background of Owen Tudor, he never raised any accusations about the legitimacy of Henry Tudor's grandparents' marriage. So I do believe that they did lawfully marry. I mean, during this day, you only needed a witness and a, and a friendly priest to do that. But Catherine died in childbirth on her 37th birthday in 1437. And it's here that Owen fell into a bit of trouble. He was suddenly exposed and he was pursued by a number of enemies at court and even briefly imprisoned. It was only through the mercy of his stepson, Henry VI, only around 16 years old himself, it was only through his mercy that Owen was exonerated of any wrongdoing. And then he led a quiet life for the next decade before the Wars of the Roses would erupt, during which his son from this marriage, Jasper Tudor, would play a leading role. The Wars of the Roses first erupted in 1455 and saw competing royal houses, the House of Lancaster and the House of York, vie for power and the crown. It was brutal and ever-changing. Sometimes York had the upper hand, sometimes Lancaster. Could you tell me about the Battle of Mortimer's Cross? By 1461, the wars are really kicking in. In December 1460, the Duke of York, Richard of York, has been killed at the Battle of Wakefield. And this leads the rise of his 18-year-old son, Edward of March, the future Edward IV. Edward has raised his army in the Welsh March, in Shropshire, Herefordshire and uh, Gloucestershire. And he's about to do battle with Jasper Tudor of the House of Lancaster. Jasper Tudor is Owen Tudor's son. He is also, through his mother, Catherine of Valois, the half-brother of the Lancastrian king, Henry VI. So we have the stage set for this massive battle in a place called Mortimer's Cross in Herefordshire between two armies, one for Lancaster, one for York, both heavily drawn from Wales. Both armies are chiefly Welsh in their makeup. Now, it's at this point that Owen Tudor surfaces at the age of around 60 years old to do battle alongside his son. He is given control of one aspect of the battle and he wades in despite his age. Unfortunately for Owen and the House of Lancaster, it is the House of York that emerge victorious. Jasper Tudor is able to escape, but his father Owen is not. He is captured soon thereafter while trying to flee the battle and is taken, tied up 
to Hereford. But that's not the end of his story, is it? So, Owen Dudis capture should hardly have warranted much attention at this point. He's just a lowly knight. But these were chaotic times. It was only two months before this that Edward of March's father was executed. Owen Tudor represents Edward's first opportunity for retribution. Owen is the wrong man in the wrong place at this point in time. He was dragged through the streets of Hereford. His face is probably all bloodied from the battle. And see, cut a tragic figure. He was an old man. He was in his 60s. Although perhaps there were murmurs through the crowds that this had been the man who years gone past had been married to a queen. He was led into the market square in the centre of Hereford and on the stage in front of him was a wooden chopping block and an axe. Now, even at this point, the chroniclers tell us, Owen expected to be granted a pardon. Perhaps he would be imprisoned for a couple of years or ransomed back to his son. That's what normally happened. But this was not normal times. And Owen was forced to his knees on the chopping block, still expecting a pardon when he had his collar ripped away from his neck. It is only then we are told that he finally grasped the severity of his situation. Now, he was granted, as was the custom, some final words. And he used his final words to remember happier times with his wife, Catherine de Valois. He said loudly to the crowd that the head that's going to lie on this stock was one that used to lie on Queen Catherine's lap. We are told by the chronicler that he now put his heart and his mind fully to God, seemingly at peace with his end, and, quote, full meekly took his death. So Owen Tudor is executed early February 1461. His head was then set upon the highest part of the market cross. You know, this is a grisly symbol, really, of the House of York's most recent victory. It's some form of revenge, albeit I'd probably say on the wrong man, for Edward of March, who soon becomes Edward IV, the first King of York. OK, tell me what happens to his head. In the days following this death, the locals noticed a lady who kept on approaching this spiked head and kept on combing the hair of the decapitated Owen, even washing away some of the blood that had started to congeal around the head. She was doing as if she was bathing a loving family member. Around the head, she had placed over a 100 candles. Now, her identity is unknown, and the chronicler account that we have simply refers to her as a local madwoman. But I'm going to suggest that she probably was a mistress of Owen's. Just two years prior to his death, Owen actually fathered an illegitimate son named David Owen. This woman perhaps was the mother of that child. You know, a final act of love towards a man whose, well, his romantic exploits had caused significant commotion throughout his life, and perhaps now even in death. That's so interesting. Do, do we know what happened to David Owen? We do. David Owen stayed the length of time throughout the Wars of the Roses at the side of his young nephew, Henry Tudor. So they were actually very similar in age. And uh, when Henry Tudor was later chased into exile, David Owen would join him abroad. When Henry Tudor came back to England to challenge Richard III for the throne, his uncle, David Owen, was there with him. And he stayed with him throughout the first 10 years 
of the Tudors' reign. He even became his nephew Henry's chief carver, which may sound like a bit of a rubbish position today, but at the time it was a very prestigious position to hold. You were always in close contact with the king. So I think that's quite a nice ending to Owen Tudor's life, that his illegitimate child son, who never got to know him, nevertheless remained a close part of the Tudor family. Yeah, that is really nice. Um, It kind of brings me on neatly as well to my next question to you, which is to explore the legacy of Owen Tudor. I mean, it's kind of self-evident in his name, but could you guide us through it? I mean, you know, first and foremost, if Owen doesn't come to England as a young man and somehow get involved with a French queen, there isn't a Tudor dynasty full stop. That in itself is a remarkable occurrence to develop. How many Welsh refugees of that day would have been able to do that? Something about Owen's makeup, something about his character, something about his charisma, you know, his own personal attributes really kickstarted the Tudor rise. But I suppose most subtly for me, it's Owen's Welsh pedigree that really helped pave the rise of the Tudors. His demise, his execution, it drew considerable comment from Welsh bards of the day, and many of them raged at the treachery that led to his death. It was a bitter loss that was felt keenly in Wales. He was even described by one poet as an eminent kinsman to King Arthur. It is Owen's descent, his Welsh descent, that really went some way to the goodwill that was afforded to his son Jasper during the Wars of the Roses, and then his grandson, Henry. Both of them used that Welsh ancestry to great effect during the Wars of the Roses. When Henry Tudor invades to challenge Richard III for the crown, he does so through Wales. He makes a great play of his Welsh ancestry, this grandson of Owen Tudor, and it is that which goes some way towards winning the crown. And finally, throughout the Tudor period, all of the Tudor monarchs, Henry VIII, Mary, Edward VI, Elizabeth, they were all beset by major rebellions in just about every part of England at one time or the other. Wales and the Welsh, this country where rebellion had been a way of life for hundreds of years, it never raised arms against the Tudors. The Welsh remained a peaceful people throughout the Tudor period. And I believe it is that that is Owen Tudor's ultimate legacy. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you know what? I probably shouldn't admit this, but I didn't realise that about, about Wales being free from rebellions or risings, um, essentially peaceful during the Tudor reign. Just one final question. I know it's terrible to ask a writer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What are you working on next? Uh, well, believe it or not, I'm currently working on Owen's story. I've decided to write a full-fledged biography of the Welsh Tudors, going back from their origins in the 13th century, when Wales was conquered, all the way through to Bosworth Field. So Owen Tudor, Jasper Tudor, you'll soon be able to read about them. Oh, exciting. OK, thank you, Nathan. Best of luck with that. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Owen Tudor's body was buried in the chapel of the Church of the Greyfriars, Hereford. He wasn't the only one whose corpse became the object of amorous attention. During the reign of her grandson, Henry VII, Catherine's tomb at Westminster Abbey was disturbed by building work and the lid of her coffin was raised. For more than a century, Catherine's open resting place drew curious tourists and, in a rather macabre twist, in 1669, the diarist Samuel Pepys recalled kissing her on the lips when he visited the Abbey on his birthday. <laughs> 